Hi there and welcome to the Leading Conversation with me, performance and team coach Tom Dawson-Scoob and former Blitzbot captain and now entrepreneur Carl Brown. I must say we're enjoying recording these so much and value the messages of support and suggestions we get from you, the listener. Please keep looking out for our content on Instagram and LinkedIn, on Instagram at the.leadingconversation and on our personal LinkedIn pages or on Twitter at the Sporting Mind. We always want our content to reach as many people as we can so as to fulfill the purpose of inspiring people to lead more effectively and ultimately allow you to create your own remarkable story like many of our guests have and are currently doing. Today's guest I'm ridiculously excited to bring to you, Mr. Will Genia. Having played over 100 tests for the Wallabies, over 130 Super Rugby caps, having played in France and now Japan, Will knows his rugby. He's been a perennial vice-captain and a member of leadership groups, as well as spending some time in the hot seat himself. Will has opinions, great insights, a keen eye for what constitutes a good and not good environment, and an ability to challenge what he thinks is right and wrong, and therefore I think he's brilliant for this podcast. In this chat, Will shares his thoughts on his mate and longtime colleague, Quade Cooper, how to give feedback, what made their Reds team, Super Rugby Champions, of 2011 tick, how he deals with the struggles of top-level sports, and what learnings he's had over his 12-year career thus far. An absolute treat to listen to. We did have to use Zoom to record this uh, audio, so please excuse any faulty bits, but we did not want to cut any of the gems that Will gives us out. Please enjoy, and thanks again to Will and Carl for their time. Great. Carl, uh, lovely to see you again. Uh, good morning, right, this morning? Yep, good to get out. Uh, all done before 8.30. Uh, lovely watching a little bit of the sunrise and a uh, perfect day for it today. So uh, what did you get up to today, Tom? Uh, well, this morning I started washing the dishes. Uh, that was good the start to my day. I thought I'd... No, no, it's not a regular occurrence, but I thought <laughs> I'd contribute to the household and uh, score some points in the marriage. Um, and then uh, yeah, I got a busy day ahead of me with lots of rugby activities and, and meetings. And... Um, to be honest, just really excited to be here with um, with our guest, another guest, two guests in a row from from Australia, but sitting in Japan, Will Kenya. Lovely to have you, man. Great to see you, and uh, thanks for giving up your time. No, good to see you too, man. It's been a while, and I really appreciate you having me on the on the show. Thank you so much. No, thanks. Will, Will was just telling us offline um, that you are in the midst of a 10-month preseason in Japan, um, <laughs> and because of COVID, it's now going on another month. Uh, probably the longest preseason you've ever been part of? Without a doubt, the, the longest preseason I've ever been a part of. The last time we played a game was mid-Jan last year. So we haven't played for about 12 months. That's been extended for another month. And so is preseason. So it's getting pretty tough. And just like a little bit of insight. Um, I don't know if people already know. Preseasons are the shittest time of rugby ever. You, you just get drilled with little, uh, little reward, no action. So to have a 10-month preseason is most rugby players' absolute nightmare. Mate, it's an absolute nightmare. Because at the end of the day, as a rugby player, the reward is getting the opportunity to play on the weekend. You, know, you, yeah. take, you, you do all the hard work and the reward is to go out there and express yourself and perform. So to, to have every week for the last 10 has been pretty difficult. I can imagine. I can imagine. So, so Will, we're going to dive. We're going to dive straight into it. I think you've been around uh, for a while. People around the world know you. Um, know your, so, well, they don't know your character 100%, but they, they know you and they've seen you excel um, in so many different teams. 
if we were to, if I was to ask you, what is the one value that you most like being around? What is that value? A tough question. Uh, uh, it, it, the way for me to answer that is I like being around teams where the importance is placed on building connection and building relationships. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's probably the answer you're looking for in terms of what a, like a particular value, but in that's teams great. that I've great. been involved in, yeah, in teams that I've been involved in, it, when the importance is placed on building connection and building relationship, it makes for the most enjoyable um the enjoy, jo- enjoyable environment. I think it's more conducive to then allowing the individual to express themselves off the field, which I think then translates perfectly to, uh, you know, expressing yourself on the field. Mm-hmm. When you say connection and relationships, like what do you, what does that look like for you? Because I think, you know, I think that might look different for different people. What does is, what is an environment with these strong relationships look like for Wilgenia? Well, I'll I, I paint a picture this way. So like, and I might, this might be a long-winded answer. So when I first started playing footy, it was, it was the end of 2006, and it was, it was kind of the transition between the old-school time and, the, you know, the, the new-school time where um, you still had the old-school habits and the old-school um, way of thinking in terms of culture and environments within teams. And that was very much along the lines of the senior players around the entire um, club. You know, what they said when, if they told you to go and load bags for two hours at an airport on the way to South Africa, you just did it as a young kid. Uh, you had absolutely no say and you did everything that you were told because you didn't want to be on the outer of the group based on the way the senior players ran ran the team. Uh, whereas nowadays, it, it's more around, um, you know, getting to building relationships by actually getting to know your teammates, getting to understand the way they see things, the way they see things on the field, the way they see, see things off the field, you know, the way they perceive family, the way they perceive um just, just life in general, and I think if when you're able to do that, you, you you understand that people see things from different points of view. So that, say for example, when you're on the field in a stressful situation, you understand that person. You know how to get the best out of them, and he knows how to get the best out of you because you've taken the time to understand each other. And I think that's that to me is what building connection is all about in a high pressure environment. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great. I'm glad you gave us the long winded answer. Um, you know, you often hear you often hear people talk about the, the old school and the new school, and you know, have things got a little bit soft, almost now. You know, with a high value on relationships, getting to know people, almost um, breaking down hierarchies. What would be your response to someone who said, "Oh, you know, like you actually need some strong senior players to take the lead and to tell the youngsters what to do"? What would be your response to that? To be honest, my response to that is leadership takes many different forms. Everybody, to me, and this is my honest answer, leadership is, everybody's a leader in their own right. You know, we, we, we did a little bit of it when, we, when you were at the Rebels with us in that everybody has their own different space within an environment, within a group that you lead in. Um, and the, the, the thing for me, why I think that's so important is because if you give someone the responsibility of leading a particular space in the team, they then feel buy-in towards the direction of where the group is going. And more often than not, when you get when someone has buy-in and they have that responsibility to it, you just enjoy it more because you have a say. You have a you have a you have a complete. Um, well, you, you just feel like you're a part of where the team is yeah. going, as opposed to someone who's just going along with the flow. And I think that's the difference between like the old school times where <laughs> senior players are like do this, do that. Um, you need strong characters and strong senior players for the running of the team. Whereas 
nowadays it's back back then as a young player who experienced that you, you never really felt like you were part of the direction of the club the functioning of the of the team um whereas now it's just more conducive to a high performance environment if everybody feels a part of it yeah and that, that, you know, that's 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 what i what i tom we mentioned it uh i think we spoke about it the other day when you know there's so much value for a young player to add and, and the quicker you could make them feel comfortable and uh, empower them to express themselves and add that value, the better you can get uh, um, out of them. You know, the more you can get out of them sooner. Instead of waiting for them to like, you know, we always consider, or I suppose maybe in the back in the day, you would consider that they need to mature into a role where they need to earn their right to speak and everything. But if you create a, a, an environment where they know that they're sort of like their input is valued if they give it good thought and they've you know they've, they've you know, as long as they don't talk nonsense the whole time then then that's fair but there's so much value from these young players coming out and there's so many um new fresh ideas that we can use to innovate but it, you know in the past those might have been lost just purely because well you're young you don't know what you're talking about just shut up so get on with the job whereas like you said i think because of the breaking down of the hierarchy now it's more based on on the valuable input that you have as opposed to how long you've been there i mean that's, that's it's always a respected measure and everything but it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't just mean that that that's you know entitles you to use your voice more is it then your responsibility will and kyle to, how do you how do you draw the youngsters how do you draw stuff out of the youngsters how do you get the the young people to lead and take ownership and feel empowered like how do you practically do that well so for me it was a learning process because when having come through the old school type of um, mentality, like initially when I, I, I was sort of to sort of thrust into a leadership role in terms of being a vice captain, but also being a you know a game driver within the teams that I was in at a young age, it was more along the lines of this is what I expect of you, um, do this, do that, and you know you, you'd give someone a spray or whatever it is. But the older I've gotten and the more experience I've gained, like I said, I've just developed the understanding that people don't see the things the way that I see. And that's been the that's been the biggest eye opener for me because it, what it's allowed me to do, and like you're saying, in a practical sense, it's having small conversations with uh, with each individual about little parts of their role within the team and making them feel like um, I understand where they're coming from. Through that mute ending, I, I can ask of him what I what I want him to like give me what he's going to do. Because the thing about someone young coming in, yeah. Like they may not be experienced, but they bring bring in fresh perspective. They're bringing a yeah. new idea that I might not have th- thought of because I've been stuck in my world. Mm. So, I guess the practical thing for me is just having little conversations every so um, because it's just a of a bit of a team environment. Someone who's young might not feel that comfortable to speak in groups. So, if you make you take the time to go and speak to them. And have those yep. small conversations, you can get a general of what they're thinking and start to make them feel a little bit more comfortable so they can speak uh, in the group setting a little bit more easier. I would, I would say that, that um, those conversations and getting to know the players better also helps you gauge your expectations of a young guy. You know, like whereas if you, if you didn't know what they're about uh, and you kind of just sort of, thrust, like you say, thrust them into a role and they failed, you'd be like, oh, fuck, well, I thought this is what you could do. Whereas if you got to understand them, you understood, you know, how they react under pressure, um, what they're capable of, what they, you know, what they like, then you try push them towards places where they're a little bit more confident, and that's where they can grow quicker. But Tom, on a practical point, like I, I've, I'm quite, um, quite into getting guys in sort of um, 
you know leadership or just allowing them to take ownership of sort of low stakes things um, within the team environment so it doesn't have to say like well, well you got to go and captain the next match like there could be an opportunity at practice where the young guy could take the lead on that and and you tell him like this is this is your part of the, the practice it's fairly low stakes you know like if it doesn't go well then it's, but it, it just sort of gives him that that little platform to go like okay right i'm com- i'm confident to do this i can talk at this level um if i talk people are actually listening like that that's often a worry for a young guy is that he'll like oh shit i can't talk enough because uh well the old guys they're just going to think i'm talking nonsense but whereas you give them that platform you give them the power to say something and they you know all of a sudden they like they they understand the value in it and then they're also they check their words too so they're not they, they don't just go out and, and uh they don't just bladder off that you know they, they speak sense and they give their absolute best there. and then that for me allows them to grow into that position mm, that's not there it's a nice example well i know will loves his cricket um <laughs> and um well obviously we've just seen that australian i don't know how much you caught of it in japan but that australian indian series um and i found it fascinating watching this indian side who ostensibly eight of their that, that no in no test series victory has a team ever won that's used as many players they use 20 players in one series and usually the the most of any other test victory in cricket has been 16 players used so they use 20 players because of injury and things went wrong we kept went home to have a baby um etc etc um and these young guys came through and i started to think to myself like what is it about that environment that has allowed these young guys to um, excel. And one of my one of my summarizations was maybe it's the IPL. So this IPL, this competition that's been created where you get these young guys who have to perform at the highest level of intensity, but with unbelievable mentoring around them for eight, nine weeks every year, suddenly you're getting these guys walking straight into the test arena at Brisbane or, or Sydney or Melbourne, and they're able to perform straight away. Do you guys believe in a little bit of throw people into the deep end because that's going to upskill them? I, I don't know if you've got views on that. Uh, I'll let you go first. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it because um, it's, 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 it's actually a really interesting one. Yeah, I, I do believe in throwing them in the deep end, but uh, sort of a fairly measured approach to it. Whereas I, um, I would do a, a, a lot of the risk analysis as to what, what could happen, what could go wrong. Um, and like I say, a measured approach where, you know, I don't let them know that, that I'm always there for, for them, but, um, I would, I would let them know that there are consequences of the failure. And it's sometimes through that little bit of pressure, there's a little bit of learning or there's a fair bit of learning and growth, you know, they get stretched at that level. But also I suppose as a leader, you need to be ready to catch when, when something happens and make sure that the ship is, is righted, um, listen you don't want a, a young player to be pushed into position or thrown in the deep end and then for them to completely fall apart that does nothing for anybody so you want them also to have an idea that a little bit of failure is fine and your teammates are all there for you but you know we're all going to look after each other and uh, i'll have your back when it happens so it is it's a it's a tough approach to it um but there's also like there's two different perspectives on you know what i allow them what i would allow a young guy to see and what i know might happen and how i can rectify it well yeah i think the way i think about it is like naturally yes so i think naturally young kids these days when they're thrust into a high performance environment they're just generally quite confident as it is you know the the kids come out of school young kids who who play sport just completely 
believe in themselves to a point where like I could never when I was their age. But I, I, I think the, the, the environment that they go into is, is something that really helps as well. And I'll use our time at the Reds, my time at the Reds as an example. So when we, we, when we won it in 2011, we were very fortunate that we, we had Ewan McKenzie as our coach. And he was an excellent coach, an ex- ex- excellent man manager. And I think for me, when I think back, of, back at that, like as young kids going into that environment, the best thing he did for us was simplify it completely. And, and what I mean by that is he gave us three rules. He said, wear the right gear, um, turn up on time and train hard. I don't care what you do outside of um, when you're not here, but when you get here, you train hard. So because we had three rules as, as young kids, nothing, nothing was complicated. It was real simple for us that we just had to turn up in the right gear, turn up on time and train hard. And then over the course of that time, organically, this culture just developed of, um, you know, just like we were incredibly competitive. We pushed each other to be the best that we possibly could be um, purely through the environment being so simple. And it allowed us to express that because there weren't so many rules and say regulations and all these standards and expectations we were we were allowed to express ourselves completely off the field which for me translates incredibly onto, into trans uh into expressing yourself on the field mm. so when i think about i guess that the the indian team and their performance in in the test series all those guys coming in it, it seems to me that they're part of an environment where they're allowed to express their themselves off the field they're allowed to be the the, the confident the the outlandish the the sort of new brand of new 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 brand new age type of athlete where it's yeah. not about being politically correct or socially correct just it's just being yourself yeah that that's also awesome, really because I, I was going to ask about my next question was going to be about the reds 2011 because it was a special team and i think people remember you know remember that team fondly uh Genia, cooper nine and ten you were probably about 23 if my maths is right through 22 23 uh quite i think is a year or so younger than you so you guys were really young in the most like for those people who don't understand rugby nine and ten control the game um so you and mckenzie made it really simple what else did you receive in that environment maybe from some senior players i think the captain was hall at the time um what did you receive from those guys that enabled you to just be like you said, just be yourself, just be free and running and, and taking charge. Mate, to be honest with you, 95% of the success we had, you'd put down to Ewan McKenzie and his leadership and his understanding of how to create that environment. Because like I said, everything was so simple for us that we didn't, our minds weren't all complicated by all these other rules and expectations and standards. It was literally those three things. And like I said, because of, because it Organically, that culture just where, mate, you should you, you should see us at training. We were competitive. Like we would be fifteen v fifteen within fights and training and things like that. And it just allowed this, like I said, this culture and environment of high performance and competitiveness to to um, to sort of organically develop. But the other thing that he did really well is he didn't treat everybody the same. And I think for me, that's probably an area where coaches. I, I, that I don't think coaches do really well is they have blanket rules for everybody, like almost like a school teacher. Like this is what you do. That, you know, everybody follow this type of rule. I remember he sat James Hall and I, who were the captain and the vice captain, down at uh, um, at some point during 2010, before the 2011 season. And he said, "Look, I'm going to give Quade a little bit more leeway uh, in terms of how he does things because Quade's a bit of a maverick, right? He's a little bit loose in the way that he does things. Like he'll turn up to a meeting." just as it's about to start, you know, he's, he's just that type of bloke. So he said to us, I'm giving you guys a heads up. I'm going to let him 
I'll be a little bit loose with things because I know that if I make him feel like he can do what he wants and make him feel like he's the man, he's going to play bloody well. And we need him to play bloody well in order for us to win. And when I look back on that, and when we completely agreed, we're like, yeah, whatever you can do to make sure he's playing well for us. But when I look back on that now, being a little bit older, like that, that's such an amazing piece of leadership within that, with, within our group because he just completely understands that we're all different. In order to get the best out of each individual, you've got to make sure you get to know that person, understand how they tick, uh, and sort of create an environment that allows them to be them, their best selves. And he was the same with Digby Line at the time. Digby's been a 12-year-old kid since he turned 12 and he's 23 now. You know, he's, he's like a big child. But he understood that because Digby was that way, he'd let him be immature. He'd let him be, you know, silly in team meters and things like that and be a little bit loose again because he didn't want to curb his personality because he wanted him to be completely himself because when he was completely himself, he's playing phenomenal rugby. And, and Willie, what did, he, what did he... No, no, I was just going to... Uh, no, I was fascinated about that because there were two things I wanted to know. Like, how did you and Mackenzie get to know the people? And then what did he allow Will Genia to do? Because he allowed Quade Cooper to arrive just on time and he allowed Tigbiani to be a 12-year kid. What did he allow Will Genia to do? Mate, I'm pretty... Uh, I'm sure you, I'm pretty low-maintenance, man. Like, I, I turn up, I love training, <laughs> I love playing, I... I I, I don't expect too much or anything like that. I, I'm pretty chill sort of a guy. I didn't even want to be vice captain. I was everything like things like that was a surprise for me. I just love the game and love playing. But in terms of getting to know the the the, the players, he he was a pretty reserved sort of a guy. Like he he didn't talk very much, uh, but he had this aura about him because he'd come from success. He'd had he'd reached two Super Rugby finals with the Waratahs. Uh, he coached in Stade Francais, so. Uh, he had this aura about him, but then when you couple that with the fact that he doesn't, when he because he doesn't talk that much, when he spoke, so if he took time to have a conversation with you in the hallway or um, in between sessions, you appreciated it and you actually sat down and you paid attention. And he also would take the, you you knew that if he was taking the time to do that, he was interested. He wanted to get to know, get to know you. So you sort of felt that you cared about you. Um, he was in. When I think about it now, you because he was that way, we really wanted to play for him. There was such such a, a huge amount of respect for him um, as a person and as a coach. Tom, so I I suppose this question might be posed to you: like, what do, what are the the potential pitfalls of a of an approach like that? You know, where in my head I'm thinking, okay, so you allow certain guys to do certain things. Doesn't that open the door for a lot of other, you know, a lot of other sort of a potentially negative self-expression to to come out. Well, yeah, no, thank. It's a great question. So, so I want to just recount the story. So, I was on a talk. I was doing a talk to some coaches during lockdown uh, on Zoom, and I was recounting the story about my experiences with Wolgenia. And I said, um, I said, Wolgenia for me is one of the most unbelievable trainers I've watched. Carl, this guy runs a practice like I've never seen anything anyone do it. But Wolgenia will miss the odd session. Because his body, like you said it, Willie, like your body's sore. So I said, Will will miss the odd session, and it just is how it is, and the coach would allow it. Because the coach's words to me at the time were, Will's earned that right to miss practices. He's got 90 tests under his belt. When he trains, he's incredible, and, on, and he's playing unbelievably well on a Saturday. And the, the people on the call completely disagreed with me. They were like, that's bullshit. 
Like, really? Well, and I was, yeah. They were, they were said, nah, you know, like that's that's not fair and what have you. So I said, well, that's how it is, and, and I agree with it. Um, so, so there's this really good model um, called the scarf model done by a neuroscientist called David Rock. And um, he, what he talks about, he says different people value different things, and you've got to understand that. So scarf stands for S is status. So certain players want status. You've got to elevate them. You've got to make you make sure that they that they're the main man uh, in the in the in the team. Certain people want certainty, so they, they they get they get driven and energized and are kept they're kept safe. They're sort of kept psychologically safe by knowing what's going to happen. Other people need autonomy. So I would say like a Quaid, if you tell Quaid what to do all the time and give him no autonomy, I'm not sure you're going to get the best out of Quaid. Other people get safe from relatedness. So that's the R. So relatedness is the, is the, um, is the connections between people. And then F is fairness. So they, they need to see that things are fair. So, so the reason I share that model is because I think people who might score high on F might go, hang on, why is Genia training half the amount of time that I'm training? But someone who someone who's, 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 who's motivated by something else might not care. You know, if they're motivated by status and their team's winning and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 12 and my backline is, is on fire and we're winning because Genia's service is incredible. Like, I don't care about the fairness, you know? So I think it's different people um, would, would construe the situation differently. Me personally, I'm like, Go for it because I know when Will Genia trains, he's training at that level, and I know that he's not expecting, um, he's not expected to play any differently on a Saturday. In fact, he's going to drive the standards higher. That's my, my thinking. Yeah. Am I right Actually, about Quaid? Well, well, I love that. Mo- I love the, that model because, like, the moment you were you were listing things, I was like, oh my, it's him, and and the oh A is him, and you know, so you can just pick people and you just see it fitting in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were gonna say. I think. I think. I think it also. Well, I, th- I think it also comes back again to like a coach being the leader of the group, just understanding his players as well. When you take the time, because I'm sure if I was not performing on Saturdays or if I wasn't training well at that intensity, Dave would be the first people like, "Mate, you're not training hard, like, or you're not playing well. Get out there and train. I'm not letting you miss a session." But it's it's yeah. interesting. Like have, the the question you bring up there is the going back to the Quaid story. We quite did have that leeway, but the funny thing is, um, he took a little bit too far. And then, as a playing group, we got together and we sat him down in a team meeting. And one of the boys got up and said, "Look, Quaid, we understand that you know you're the man, you're a rock star. Like we need you playing well. You're killing it, but also like you're stand- like you're, you're carrying on a bit too much. You know, we we don't appreciate that you are spraying blokes or you're turning up a little bit late to meetings. Uh, and the fact that it was the fact that it was from the playing group." Um, yeah. it, it Quaid took it on board and was like, "All right, I apologize for the way I've been carrying on. Um, uh, I'll, I'll pull my head in." And then from that point on, like because we took control of it, uh, it was addressed, and you know he was a model student from then on. Yeah, it's awesome to hear that level of like maturity, especially when when people understand that it's their peers and everybody just wants the best out of each other. That it's a it's a respected criticism where it comes from, you know, as opposed to just being like, "Oh, well, what do you guys know? I've, I'm that's what I'm allowed to do." But it's, it's awesome to hear that criticism. I, I've, I've, I mean, that, that level of maturity from him. I've, I've met him a couple of times and, you know, you see so many different things in the media, but he's such a, he's such a down to earth, chilled guy. Like, and, and one of the hot, like the fiercest competitors, you know, he played a little bit on the seventh circuit. And when he was out there, he was like, for one, he was super humbled by how tough the game was. And for two, just loved it. Like, you know, he loved to go out there and just give it absolutely everything for Australia. So it was, it's really cool to get to to know those kind of people and hear further stories like that, that sort of um, 
confirm what what you've you've met already yeah i was saying he's, he's a great he's a great man there's 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 often this perception of him being this yeah. this sort of arrogant um you know out there sort of guy who's, who can be disrespectful and things like that but he's one of the most hard-working people i know and and if i'm being absolutely honest that particular moment was a huge turning point for him as a person because uh it wasn't necessarily the media or the coaches or you know authority figures telling him that he needs to pull his head in it actually came from mm-hmm. his his peers you know his his teammates who 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 are the people that are there working hard with him so uh, I remember sitting in that meeting thinking to myself this could go anywhere he could actually get up <laughs> and, and be off us and spray us and tell us to get get lost but he, he took it so well he took it on the chin and uh, like I said it was a huge turning point for him as a person and he, he certainly grown a lot from it I, I think Carl, like it just says so much about culture. So, well, I, I remember chatting to someone um, in Australia who had been at the Waratahs, and he told the story of how someone, let's someone like me, basically, was in their environment and he was encouraging them to give feedback. So they'd structure this feedback, but he wanted them to be really direct. And he reckoned, I forget, I won't name the names, but like basically, it transpired that some twenty-year-old was was telling a 30-year-old who'd played 70 caps for the Waratahs that his carrying was shit, you know, or like he wasn't pulling his weight on defense. And he said he said it was an absolute disaster. It, it, it tore the team apart because it was, A, it was contrived, um, and B, it was like, you know, I always believe, Kyle, well, you, you can't give that direct critical feedback until you've built some level of respect in the relationship. You know, so maybe a Ewan McKenzie's got respect because he's got that aura, so he can be quite direct. But if I don't have that respect, it's difficult for me to come, you know, no, really hard at you. So uh, I, I thought it was interesting because your your thing with 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 Quady, that, that that happened organically. No one asked you to do that. Is that right? No, it, it literally like so. Uh, we we were we we'd had a team meeting, and a couple of the boys had come to myself and James and said, "Look, can we have a." Uh, when the team meeting's over, can we just have a players meeting? We 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 we, we want to address because it, it was quite obvious to the group that Quaid was being a little bit loose in his behaviour and things like that, and to the point where like it was getting on some of the boys' nerves. So they 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 came to us and said, "Look, can we have a can we just stay in behind as players?" And I want to get up and say that uh, one of the boys like I want to get up and say this because it's certainly a reflection of the entire group. Uh, and we 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 were like, "Yeah, absolutely," because we feel that way as well. Um, but again, it was it it was really powerful, like I said, because it it didn't come from a coach or a player or even like a lead, like a captain or a vice captain. It just came from uh, one of the boys. Um, and like you said, the, a lot of the times in rugby teams, you build relationships, um, you know, through getting to know each other, but also through doing the hard work. You know, when you're in a preseason yeah. and you're just getting smacked out in the field doing fitness together, you build those bonds because you look across and you see this bloke's working hard with me, you know, like he's got my yeah. back, I've got his back and there's just an instant connection that you can build a further relationship on. So those bonds were built, you know, we were having success further strengthened because of success and the fact that we got up and said it at that time, um, you know, I think was really powerful in terms of Quaid and his growth as a person. Tom, you, you mentioned about like being a bit direct and everything and <clears throat> something that I, I probably learned a bit too late in my career, but there are there are situations where you absolutely cannot be direct with a person, especially not in a, um, well, or more sorry, more contextually, not in a team environment. There are some players that will, that, that just, they will not react well to that directness or being called out in front of people. They far prefer the, um, <clears throat> the one-on-one 
and just acquired word and and they react so well to that it's incredible you know like um where you you sh- you feel like it should be forceful you feel like it should be you should be reprimanding that person but it it, it just turns to an absolute mess you know and it's like it's often the guys where i would say i don't know just listening to your your your, your model maybe the the status guys like if you're trying to knock them off that status um it's it's absolutely detrimental and it, it goes negatively so quickly whereas if you just pull them aside and be like hey but listen you you what you're doing right now is um is, is you know really bad for the team it's just not in line with what we do and they're like shit man i i didn't even realize i'm so sorry about that and that's it and you're like oh wow <laughs> that really that went really well you know and it's and it's incredible to see how you have to approach things so individually and and that goes back to what you were saying earlier was about understanding and learning those relationships and learning what makes people tick to get the best out of it well yeah man i like I, I couldn't agree more in terms of those relationships like we've got a young we, we've got a young winger here in japan uh he's constantly getting sprayed at training because he's never he never knows where he's supposed to be but i've actually started to realize he like you said he doesn't respond well to it so I, I, like because i have some sort of knowledge around back three and positioning things like that i've started to have like slight conversations with him about where do you think you're supposed to be and like you said addressing it that way in a one-on-one situation as opposed to trying yeah. to reprimand him in front of the team and he's, he's responded so much better. Like he's taken a little bit more ownership around it. He understands it a little bit more. Um, and it, yeah, I think, I think that's, you're completely right. It's about understanding the individual and how they process information in the best way so that they can continue to perform their roles within the team. Yeah. Well, um, as a proceed to you, like I, I've seen you be very direct on the on the field. I, in fact, I remember a conversation that that we had around, which links to your thing about simplicity, which was instead of giving three messages on the field, give one. Um, and 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 I saw you do it because what we did, Carl, at the Rebels, which is really cool, we could mic up the players during training, so we could afterwards you could actually listen to what they were saying during training and how effective that communication was. Um, I wondered, well, have you ever been on the receiving end of some really effective, A, and B, ineffective feedback in the heat of battle from people that you're playing with? So like some really good communication and then some really poor communication that you've experienced to you. Well, I think we, in my time at the Rebels, I probably was a part of, I was probably part of the problem as well in, in, in a sense that we probably, whenever we had, uh, pressure situations within games because we had a lot of players who were, I guess, senior players or whatever, however you put it, we all kind of felt like we wanted to get our message across and it was almost like an ego thing. So it was never really anything completely direct and specific around uh, finding solutions to problems that we were experiencing within games. The, uh, in terms of the, the other sort of side of things, I think Michael Hooper is probably very, very good at it. You know, he's... As a captain, he's very direct in terms of really simplifying his message. You know, he'll give you like one or two focus points within a huddle or he'll give you one or two focus points at the start of a game and he'll continuously refer back to it because he makes it clear to the team that if, we, if, we, if, we, if we're across those two things within a game, more often than not, we're going to give ourselves a chance of being successful. So then it's always just going back to those one or two points. And I think he was very, very good at it. Whereas I think, like I said, when we are at the Rebels, we were probably we were probably caught in between everybody wanting to sort of have their say. And like I said, I was, I was certainly part of that problem as well. Tom, um, as, as an example of a, of, of a probably a, a really poor way to communicate was in the heat of battle, we, there were times when, you know, things would go south and a, a try would be scored against you. 
and and one one or two examples of it was we would have a somebody running on the water which would actually part of management come on and like just start screaming at us you've got to make your tackles but like useless information like stuff i absolutely hated to the point that at one point i turned around and just told them like get off the bloody field like you know don't i know i have to make my tackles give me something that i can fix the game with please don't come here and tell me the obvious stuff that they're like uh, i know i'm missing tackles fine you know why am i missing tackles what do i need to rectify is my positioning wrong is it you know and we you know we that actually launched into a whole new thing post game and like we had to talk about the approach that the guys coming onto the field needed to bring a level of calm there is clearly panic on the field don't bring more panic onto it you know don't 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 come shake the boat even more help us steady it and it's it's always um it's always interesting as to the, the effect that the bench and people running onto the field can have on you know on on those players on the field whereas i think people think that it's only up to those players on the field to to make the difference a lot of differences can be made by just a little bit of like a calming word a clear instruction something to give me a little bit more guidance maybe something that i'm not seeing that you as coaching staff or you as the bench are seeing that can help us rectify this um yeah th- thanks for that Kyle. i think that's i think that's a great point i um i wanted to ask well, um, you've obviously been part of some really successful Australian sides uh, and some sides that haven't gone so well. And, and you've seen some, some turbulent times. You spoke about Quaid as a maverick, but I think there have been a few mavericks in the Australian rugby setup over the, over the, over the years. Um, what have you sort of seen in the ebbs and flows? We know that this last World Cup that you played in wasn't as successful for you. Um, but Michael Checker had some real success in his early times. Like, what have you noticed at international level with the Australian side that's really worked and that hasn't worked so well um, in that international setup with the different people, different cultures coming together? Well, you see, the international setup can be quite difficult for a test match coach because, say as a club coach, if you've got four years, you've got four years to develop a culture and build an identity and build that environment where it's easy for people to buy into, whereas... As a national coach, as a test rugby coach, everything's based on results and because everything, the pressure is heightened a whole lot more. So it's a balance between building an environment, building a culture while also trying to get results straight away. And that can kind of work against each other. Um, that, that, in that process, it can kind of work against each other. In terms of the Australian teams that I was part of, I thought Michael Check is an excellent coach, an excellent man manager. He certainly gets... He, he, he gets a pretty unfair rap because of obviously the way he's perceived in the media and things like that. But what he did, which I thought was really, really good was he actually established an identity of what it meant to be a Wallaby. So when you, we, we, we had, we, we all got together and we wrote, we, we wrote down things of what we perceived that it meant to be a Wallaby. And then as a group, we then, we put something together that was established as this is the Wallaby identity. So anytime that, we, we were selected in the team or new members came into the team, it was incumbent upon us to uh, share that document with each other to, like I said, make sure that you identified with this is what it means to be a Wallaby within this setup. And in the teams that I've been a part of, the, he was the only one that created that. And it, you, you feel like a sense of belonging when you're there, which I think is really, really powerful. Um, Whereas in years gone by in the teams that I was a part of in the Wallaby setup, sometimes you feel it's just like a rep, a rep team or you think it's like a rewards team or an honest team. But to know that there was an identity and a sense of belonging, I thought that was really powerful. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily say correlate to success because obviously yeah. um, we didn't have, we, we weren't all that successful, but 
Um, there's other things that play into success as well. Game style, playing roster, you know, the, the strength and, uh, and the quality of the opposition teams and things like that. But for me, I, I think that that's one of the things that he did that was incredibly successful in creating an environment that you wanted to be a part of. So, well, like, I, I find this fascinating because, you know, most people listening to this have never played international sport, will never play international sport. Um, that is the pinnacle of the game. There's other things that come with, with playing for the Wallabies. Like, you're going to get money, you're going to get endorsements, you're going to get a bit more fame and, you know, maybe some more love from the ladies, whatever it might be. Like, there's going to be a lot more that comes your way. Um, how do you create selflessness? Because rugby is such a connected sport where you have to be selfless and, you know, the nine's got to make the 10 look good and the 10's got to make the 12 look good and the loose head's got to make the tight head look good. How, do you, how did you find or how do you find you can create selflessness in a massively hype team like, like, like the Wallabies and, and then maybe even Kintetsu or, or, or the Reds or the Rebels or, or, or in France? Look, mate, it's a, that's a difficult question because... As a professional sportsman at the highest level, you've got to be selfish uh, to a certain extent because you you need to understand what you need to do to put yourself in a position to to be to be strong, to be fit, to be fast, to be able to perform at those levels. So part of you has to be selfish to make sure that you're right to be able to perform. Um, but it's it's just the nature of playing a team sport. Naturally, it's 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 not about yourself; it's about the team. And I think maybe as a younger player. For me, I would I sort of would get caught up in wanting to play well for myself and wanting to read about the press and the media and things like that. But the older I got, like you, you realize rugby as a team sport. It's about a group of individuals working hard together to reach a common goal. And there's nothing more satisfying than reaching that goal together. You know, like like I use the example of got you build connections and you build bonds through guys doing preseason together. You can't like it's hard to really put that into words how much that how much that means. Like for me, when I see my teammates actually busting their gut next to me, working hard, just as hard as I am, some harder than I am. Like you build those bonds and those connections to the point where you think, all right, I don't want to let him down. He's working hard because he doesn't want to let me down. So then naturally you start to realize you're doing it for each other. While you're being selfish to make sure that you prepare as well as you can and as hard as you can when you see that your other t- your teammates are doing that as well, you realize they're doing it for you, you're doing it for them. And it just becomes a natural thing that you, you don't want to let them down, they don't want to let you down. I think that's really interesting that like self, sorry, Carl, just that selflessness is then, according to your will, is almost built through action, yeah. not through or, words. Or competition. Or competition. And selfishness is, 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 is but self, selflessness and selfishness are not actually at the opposite ends of the spectrum in order to, in order for you to perform at a high level. They they work together. I so used to I used to, to bang bang on a bit about like elevation, you know. So how how we reach certain levels? Like there is only a certain level that you can reach alone. Um, but as a team, we can we can reach heights that like there's that none of us alone could do. So I used to try to try drill that in about like what we could actually achieve together is far greater than any of us could do alone. And I mean that was just one angle I suppose I used. Mm. Willie, yeah, like I mean I, I couldn't agree I, I couldn't agree more because it selfishness and selflessness work together hand in hand in a team because like like you're saying there, Kyle, you you got to get yourself to a certain point. 
And to get to that point where you're the best of, to the, of your absolute ability, you've got to be selfish. But then if you all get to that point individually, from there you buy in together collectively, you'd go even higher. Um, so yeah. I completely agree with you there, Tommy. Like it, it, it goes hand in hand. They're not on opposite ends of the spectrum. They, they completely go hand in hand within a team. And it's about accepting it. If you, it, it, if you accept that and you're aware of it, then it's easy. But it, you, you know, sometimes when we think about opposites, you try to fight it. Like, oh, don't be selfish. It's about the team. But no, part of you has to be selfish in order to be successful because you've mm -hmm. got to be selfish to get yourself to a point where you're at your best and then you expect that of your teammates. They expect that of you. You don't want to let them down. And then you go, you, you go to even greater heights as a team together. Yes, I think that's an unbelievable learning. Presumably, there's got to be a point where there's a switchover. You know, so there's, like you say, selfish to a, to a point, um, but you've also got to know when to give, give all of you to the team and not make it about yourself anymore because like, I would say preseason is all about you. Like you got to, you've got to want, you got to run faster than everybody else. You got to run harder. You got to gym harder. You got to get more reps. But like, there isn't much outcome there that is team based. You've got to get yourself to the point where you get selected, and then from that point, you're it's all team based outcomes and what you can add. And then, like you say, if you're at your absolute peak, you're adding more to the team than what you could have if you weren't, you know, if you weren't selfish before. Mm. Mm. But so that's the best example of it. So preseason, you, you're you're selfish. You're building your body up to make sure you're in the best possible opportunity, like giving yourself the best opportunity to perform. And then eventually, once you then get together with your team, I can't be a halfback without my forwards. My back, my number ten can't be a ten without me giving him the ball. And it's 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 an organic realization that in order for me to do my job, they've got to do their job. In order for this guy to do his job, I've got to do my job. So like yeah. you said, you're selfish up until a point and that's essentially your preseason. But then once you get in the games, it's about, all right, I've got to do my job for him. He's got to do my job for me. We've got to do our job so that we get the result that we're after. Well, I mean, you've given us such a, such a nice insight into the way you think. And I wanted to just dig into that a little bit more, if I may. Like, we can't be blind to the fact that we're living in a pretty tough time. You know, people are in lockdowns in different countries. The world is changing. It's different. It's, it is quite tough. Now, our sport throws tough times up at you all the time, whether it's on the field, like in a specific match, or whether it's on a sort of greater spectrum, you're going through a bad run of form or you're out of contract or what have you. Um, I, I think I know the answer to this is that you have experienced some tougher times in your career, even though you've been massively successful. How have you dealt with the tough times? Well, how have you, how have you become, been resilient, either at a macro scale or even in a micro scale, like in a match? Mate, for me, it's a, the, as simple as this. It's just control what you can control. And I, 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 was, I was very fortunate as a young kid. I learned that very early on. Um, because every, like, it's, 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 you say this, like fear, for example, people have fear, but fear isn't real. All fear is, is just an idea of, if, so fear is essentially just the idea of the unknown. That's all it is. It's not real. And, and we get too concerned about the outcome and the consequence and the results of things. And that creates fear, which again, for me, is not real. Whereas for me, I learned early on that all I can do is control what I can control. So when things are going well, when things aren't going well, all I do is worry about, well, not worry, concentrate on controlling the things that I can control. And then look, in moments in my career when I've not been selected or I've not performed as well as I would like, it just comes back to, like, think of things objectively. Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I play as, as, as well as I would have liked? Why is this happening? Why am I getting these particular poor results or whatever it might be? And then, all right, control what I can control. 
go back to that and focus on that process. Yeah. And because it keeps me so single-minded and so focused on that, I completely block out absolutely everything. And it's been such a good thing for me in, say, everyday life and that we can get so caught up in what's happening at the moment, what that, what things might look like in the future. Um, but th that idea of just controlling what I can control allows me to just be in this particular moment and enjoy what it is that I'm doing now. If, if I might ask, like, where does that come from? Because, you know, the assumption is that a lot of people look at inflating the potential negative outcomes of things. And that's what causes a lot of shit in our heads that we think that the, the a, a poor or a uh, you know, an undesirable outcome is 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 awful. It's detrimental, and that ends up paralyzing us doing from doing what we want to do or is performing as well as we want to. So where did it start? Where you just I mean that's a very logical approach you have, and it should be everybody's approach, but it's not. You know why why did you how were you able to take that on so early? Well, it was a process for me. So when I was a young kid, I was told. Like I was never going to be good enough. I'm never going to make it as a, as a rugby player. So I was always afraid of that, you know, afraid of making a mistake to yeah. sort of reinforce what all these people were saying. But then when I eventually got my opportunity as um at the Reds, I had a mentor that looked after me. He said, like, I would always, if I threw a poor pass, I'd be worrying about it four or five or six passes later. And he said to me one time, and it was just like a light bulb moment. He said, what's you, how are you, how is you thinking about what you did before going to help you doing what you do now? And it kind of was just like a switch. I was like, you're exactly right. The fact that I did that then doesn't have any control over what I'm doing now. And me doing what I'm doing now doesn't have any control of what I'm going to do later. So it's, it's almost like it's, 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 it's everybody's own experience. It, it comes to you in, in your own time as far as, as, far as I guess, what, how, how you see life. So for me, I was fortunate that I learned that early on. It really helped me as a professional athlete because – like I said, in moments in games, you can be so worried about making a mistake or not winning the game that you actually lose focus on doing your job within uh, your role in the team. Yeah. So it's always been for me just sort of control what you can control. And I think sort of maybe going back to a little bit of what you're saying there, pe people get so worried about the outcome of things and, and making having like, making a mistake and things like that. But what people don't actually realize, now I've been like I've been again, I've been fortunate enough to learn this is none of that's real. That's all just things that are made up in your head. Yeah. <laughs> what's real is actually what's right in front. What's real is what's right in front of you, which is what you're doing, which again comes back to process, which again comes back to control what you what you can control. And like it, it was again, that was another like huge light bulb moment for me was all these things that we make up in our head. Oh, what if I make this mistake? Or I'm going to be bad at this or I'm not going to play well. None of it's real. Like none of it's just like a made up thing in your head. You know what I mean? That we allow to affect us in the way that we are yeah and well so you like you come across if we watch you from the side like you come across as confidence and in command all the time are there times real or not real are there times when you don't feel like that at all and you almost have to trick yourself into it or or not Do, is that is that the truth there's certainly times where you stress about things, you know, like I'm not going to sit here and be like, I'm like this Buddha or something that you know, doesn't have fears <laughs> and doesn't have like, but what, what, but the key to it is awareness, right? Like for me, it's awareness. And like, I was, it's interesting. It's funny. I was writing some stuff down about this yesterday. Cause like, I've just been exploring my own experiences and giving thought to it all. The key to it is it awareness and what awareness creates is like this ongoing battle in, in yourself. And what I mean by that is when you start making up those things in your head and those fears within your head that just aren't real it's about then just accepting it and letting it go 
that's that's the mm. battle if if that makes sense so yeah there's times where i might start might start thinking about a game or i might start thinking about what happens if this happens but then the process for me is to just be like all right that's there let that go that's not real and that's that's just awareness if you if you i've been fortunate enough that like i give i've given myself time to learn about these sorts of things and yeah awareness is the key awareness is the key and i think that's been the big thing that's helped me in those moments no, thanks, uh, Willie. I mean, I think, Carl, I always use this thing with teams that I work with um, called Triple A, which is acknowledge, which is like, let's, be, let's acknowledge and be aware of what's around me or what I'm feeling. Accept. So, like, accept. Like, that is what it is, whether it's real or not real. Like, it's there for me. I can't fight it. Um, it is what it is. And then act and then move on. But without the acknowledgements and the acceptance, it's very difficult to just act and just bulldoze your way through things. And I think that's a really interesting insight that Will gives us is that like over time, you've learned to acknowledge things through your conversations with, with your mentor, the Reds and, and, and you've learned to acknowledge and accept and therefore been able to play at a high level, despite still feeling it's like it's not always in control or going well. Yeah, no, like, I was just saying like that. That's the biggest thing is like, you acknowledge that things are there. It's, it's not about pretending that you're not afraid or pretending that you're not stressed. Like, I, I think the model that you have is unbelievable. You, you acknowledge it, you accept it, which which means that you're aware of it, and then you just act. So I, I completely forgot about that. I love that. I, that's, that's essentially the way that, you know, I think about it. It's like be aware of it, accept it, don't deny it because it's just there. But then understand that for me, the next step for me was understanding it's not real. Just do what yeah. you're doing. yeah. Yeah, Carl Willard, this really cool thing um, that I, I remember asking you about. Um, in fact, I was having a conversation with you and Quaid, and we spoke about like what is the most simple, what is the one fundamental thing you can do once you've acknowledged and accepted and things are going wrong, or you've had you've thrown a bad pass or what have you. And well, you remember, I, I don't know if you remember, but you, you spoke about you just focused on your right hand of your pass. And you put all, you, you, you put, uh, you were like, I don't know, maybe you want to share a bit more about that. I, I think it's a, it's a great, simple story. Well, it's just, it goes back to what I was saying. It's process and control what you can control. So for me within a game, when I don't feel like I'm in rhythm and I'm in sync with my passing, I know that I can go back to a particular cue that gets me in sync with my process. So if I'm in a game and everything's in flow, I'm not thinking, right, I'm passing. But the moment I don't feel like I'm passing well, I go back to that cue which is, yeah, hands through to the target. And that allows me to just focus on my process. It allows me to just be in that process and control what I can control. And then naturally it just evolves that I start passing well again. And then it just becomes, I'm just in that moment again. Oh, thank you. So, well, look, this has been unbelievably fascinating. Um, I know Kyle has enjoyed it because yeah. he's been alive. I can see him there and, and, and we've both, we, we both enjoyed it a lot. I really appreciate it. We always ask the same question uh, at the end of the series. Um, if there were a team of three people um, that you would put together, to be, so it's you plus three other people, for any particular task, who would those three people be and why? Ooh, that's 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 a really really tough question. Um, I'm gonna say one of them is definitely Johnny Wilkinson because I've been really I've been doing a lot of listening to him lately and around his understanding and his um his sort of the, the uh, his process around the way that he was and the way that he's doing things. Where, where have you been listening um, so to? So one would be Johnny. Uh, I listened to a couple of podcasts that he um that he's put out around high performance and just. Just in general, his transformation from 
um, where he was when he won the World Cup to, you know, his mental health battles and things like that. It's honestly some of the most incredible things I've, I've, I've heard. Awesome. Um, but just on YouTube. Yeah, there's a high-performance podcast with – no, just uh, – just uh, we had Damien Hughes on our, our, our show a few weeks ago and, and the high-performance podcast, they interviewed Johnny – and he spoke a lot about that. It was it was an unbelievable listen. So I still I'd give that a bit of a plug. Yeah. So I mate, I go. Johnny would be one. And um, mate, you put me on the spot here. I don't even know. Um, so three people. It's just to accomplish a task. Could be your daughter. Be, I'll go Johnny just because I want to ask him a whole bunch of questions. I just I'm going to throw it in there that that a lot of people have put their wife in there. And and I mean if you don't, you could get in some trouble. <laughs> No, no, mate. She, no, I wouldn't because she'd just be, she'd be, she'd be spraying me, telling me what I'm doing wrong. So she, she can be on the sideline. I, I don't need that. I don't need that. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't need that. That's just that's taken away from my focus. I'd go Johnny. I'd go Michael Jordan, and I'd probably go uh, Mike Tyson, just because again, I just want to ask him some stories, some stuff, some stuff about his life that would make me laugh while we're trying to do some task. <laughs> Classic. Well, um, unbelievable to have you on, mate. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you stay healthy and happy in, in, in Japan in some tough times. And Chiefs, um, we really look forward to seeing you out in the field. I know you're back reunited with your with your partner, Quaid. Um, and um, yeah, man, all the best for the rest of for the rest of the year. And thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you guys, man. Thank you so much for having me. I love having these sorts of chats, and you know, yeah. I learn a lot from it as well. So thanks, guys. Anytime. Thanks very much, Thanks, Will. Buddy. Appreciate it, sir. Cheers, bud. Thank Cheers, you. Buddy.